Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Fantastic show tonight. We have poetry in the form of Laurel Winter. We've got our first in the line of articles by Peter Watts. They'll come under the heading of Reality Remastered. And each month, round about each month, Peter's going to kind of do a verbal audio article. And this one is on cognitive entanglement. And we have fiction tonight by none other than Rudy Rucker. So please stick around and join me for Oral Delights. Godlet by Laurel Winter first appeared in the fall 1992 issue of Aboriginal Science Fiction. She has a galaxy in a jar. She watches it at night when she's supposed to be asleep, marvels at the minuscule worlds orbiting glitter-speck stars. And the beings, patiently carving roads, inventing the wheel, learning to fly. She smiles. And sometimes she shakes the jar. Now, although that's just like such a little short poem, I've played that a number of times. You know what I mean? I just think that's an amazing little poem. So thank you, Laurel. Don't forget, all copyright of anything tonight is the author's. You know, I don't know if you want to kind of insist on this, but just remember that. You know what I mean? It's like I'm kind of getting this donated, so please... Bear that in mind, no copy-copy, but thank you, Laurel Winter, for that. Next we have Reality Remastered, Mr. 
Peter Watts. Peter, this is just, it's an amazing thing, this. And I wish I just had a really a teacher like Peter Watts when I was at school, do you know what I mean? And there is a few, you know, he gets passionate. There's a couple of swear words in there. So, Peter, this is a great article. Thank you very much. And I hope to get more from you, sir. Reality Remastered with Peter Watts. Here's a thought experiment for you. You kill someone who suffers from multiple personality disorder, someone with at least four distinct personae. How many counts of homicide should you go down for? Or how about this one? A pair of conjoined twins, their heads, in fact, their very brains, fused together at the temple. You tickle one set of feet, both faces laugh. You rip the leg off one like a drumstick, both faces howl. Are we dealing with one person here or two? Or even this, an epileptic whose corpus callosum, you know, that uh, big bundle of coax connecting the cerebral hemispheres, has been surgically split down the middle to short-circuit his seizures. After a while, he turns into Dr. Strangelove, each half of his body displaying different behaviors, different taste in clothes, different opinions, uh, even though only one half can express those opinions vocally, the other has to write notes. How many votes should he get at the next election? Today, we are talking about the neurology of self-awareness and personal identity. The goal, as will frequently be the case in these podcasts, is to destroy your faith in both. And so far, I've been feeding you real-world examples. Science fictional ones are often better, though, since they let you crank up the philosophical contrast higher than reality does, or at least present-day reality. Not that the whole fused babyhead scenario isn't pretty high contrast in its own right, So let's dip into John Scalzi's monster hit, Old Man's War. And if you're averse to spoilers for that particular book, now might be a good time to put your hands over yours and start humming real loud. Scalzi's novel describes a technology in which consciousness can be transferred into a cloned body. Basically, you copy all your memories, your beliefs, and kinks into the clone's brain. Then you somehow get the original and the copy into cognitive sync thinking the exact same thoughts at the exact same time. It's described in the book as a sense of being in two places at once. Then you kill the original. The copy lives happily ever after. I find this a bit dubious. Uh, Scalzi might call it immortality. It seems to me a lot more like suicide, at least from the point of view of the poor bastard inside the original body. Try this thought experiment. You wake up one morning, someone who looks just like you stands at the foot of your bed pointing a gun at you, and this person says... I'm going to kill you now, but don't worry. I've got all your memories and all your attitudes and beliefs. I've got your sense of self and our bodies. They're identical. So you won't really die because I'm you. Would anybody buy this line? Would anyone out there just shrug and say, yeah, sounds good to me and happily take a bullet in the head? I myself, I would be unconvinced. Because no matter how much this other dude looks like me, no matter how many of my memories he's copied, damn it, he's not me. And how do I know this? Because I'm here in bed, and he's over there with a gun. Problem with this scenario, it seems to me, and and it shows up wearing different clothes in Cory Doctorow's Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom as well, is that it seems to assume that the individual sense of self is somehow smeared across every running instance of ourselves. That no matter how many mother brains are running the same program at the same time, there's only one essence of meanness, I guess you'd call it, somehow diffused across all iterations. So if you destroy one instance, its sense of self will just migrate or retreat into those instances still running. That's an almost religious assumption. 
It reduces self-awareness to some kind of spiritual spark that transcends the wetware. There's no evidence for this. All the neurological data suggests that consciousness emerges from the running of the program in the meat. And even if you have a million identical laptops running exactly the same version of Microsoft Word, the instance of Word running on any given machine is still going to be dead if you take a hammer to the motherboard. We ignore for the moment the possibility that taking a hammer to the motherboard might actually be the most appropriate tool when dealing with Microsoft applications of any sort. Anyway, Word is no longer running on this broken machine. That's the point. And nothing happens to any of the other machines either. No extra instance of Word suddenly boots up elsewhere to take up the slack. They are separate systems, isolated one from another. And if one dies, it is fucking dead. Now, you could always argue that the subjective sense of self doesn't really matter, that the new you can do everything the old one could. As far as he's concerned, he is the old one in a new body. So who cares what the old discarded scrap heap thought? And that's true as far as it goes. But the original is still going to find that pretty harsh. The original still has three and a half billion years of natural selection behind him. The instinct for self-preservation bred into every last one of those generations. The only way the original is going to be cool with this is if he's either suicidal, which doesn't bode well for any clone with the same cognitive specs, or if he's tricked himself with religious beliefs in some kind of transcendent soul or an afterlife. Now, there is in fact only one way that I would buy into this replacement of the old me with a new one, and that would be using the incremental approach proposed by Hans Moravec. Basically, you don't kill me all at once. You do it a little at a time. You don't copy the brain wholesale and then destroy the original. You replace the original brain piecemeal, just a few neurons at a time, so that the sense of consciousness remains integrated and singular. Then it's not like being killed, even though logically it's exactly the same process stretched over a longer time scale. Then it's just like, I don't know, getting a hearing aid one day, bionic retina the next. Maybe a bit of memory enhancement the day after. It's smooth, it's gradual. You never have to experience that jarring sense of another you because everything happens in-house. Artificial and natural components are so tightly integrated in such intimate communication that they form a single persistent system with a single sense of self. Which leads us to Marvel Comics supervillains. Think back to that set of conjoined twins I cited at the top of this piece. They're real. They are born last year in India. A couple of sweet-faced little girls fused at the head, literally inseparable because their brains share a common blood supply and severing that would be a death sentence for half the pair. Tickle one set of feet, both faces laugh. So, one person or two. Because it's not just the blood supply that runs across that big honking fistula in the skull. The brains are fused too. The wires from one run across into the other and vice versa. Seems to me, neurologically, there's no easy way to tell where one ends and the other begins. And I would go so far as to wonder whether there even is an other in this case. Whether these two neuron porridges are mixed together as thoroughly as, say, the left and right hemispheres of our own brains. What we could be talking about here is a single super baby with two bodies but only one mind, a brain literally twice as big as that of normal folks. And given that the kid's probably going to spend most of her life, however long that is, in some kind of prosthetic brace, seems to me we are also talking about the archetypal future supervillain. Twisted, tormented, pathologically embittered by the cruel fate hand has dealt her, angry enough to want to take out her rage on the whole world, and with a brain literally twice normal size, easily smart enough to build some secret underground lair to hide away, and smart enough to think rings around any do-gooding son of Krypton, or 
nerdly spider bite victim. Yeah, I can't wait to see how this kid's going to turn out. Now, we've known for years that it works the other way, too. Uh, people with damage to their corpus callosum have a tendency to turn into two separate personalities, literally split down the middle. There's some evidence that uh, savants, autistic savants, owe their hyperperformance uh, to the isolation of little islands of neurons, stranded modules out of touch with their fellow brain parts, and therefore forced to do everything themselves. They become hyper-efficient as a result. Now, the common thread to all these examples seems to be latency. If you want to be part of a single consciousness, you better be nice and close to all the other parts that are going into the same mix. Because once you get too far away, once it takes too long for the signal to get from A to B, a sort of decoherence sets in and the persona fragments. Now, those split brain studies I mentioned, they didn't involve complete isolation of the hemispheres. The two parts of the brain could still communicate via the anterior and posterior commissures. But the fat pipe was gone. The two sides had to resort to dial-up, in effect. The throughput slows down. The right hand stops knowing what the left is doing because the time lag's too great. The mind, or minds, rather, because now suddenly there seem to be two, where before there was only one. The minds start to fight for control of the same body. There's a dude called uh, Michael Gershwin out of Columbia University. He's written a book claiming that there's also a whole other brain inhabiting the mesh of nerves around our GI tracts. No word yet as to whether that's sentient. Now, you stretch this far enough, and you can get a whole colony of conscious minds inhabiting a single soma. I'm playing around with this particular scenario for a, a story I'm writing for an upcoming anthology from Gardner Doswa. It's a, it's a story about a live, naturally evolved Dyson sphere, basically a big bubble-shaped photosynthetic membrane shot through with neural tissue. But this is not some single vast united intellect. This is a population, a bunch of islands of consciousness embedded in the same sheet of meat. And when any one island becomes too big, when it takes too long for a signal to travel from one side to the other, that individual decoheres, and two new personae emerge from the overgrown remains of the original. But we have an analogous situation much closer to home with dissociative or multiple personality disorder. Multiple, independently conscious individuals coexisting within a single brain. Now, this assumes you buy into MPD as a legitimate phenomenon in the first place, not just a pop culture fad. A couple of recent review papers have pointed out the remarkable spike in MPD diagnoses immediately following the release of the movie Sybil, uh, not to mention some rather stupid extremes in the psychiatric literature, various alternative personalities that claim to be lobsters, German shepherds, and so on. These tend to cast doubt on the whole phenomenon. But there is nothing implausible about the premise of multiple personality cores coexisting in the same brain. In fact, one model of consciousness suggests that we're all like this in a manner of speaking. According to that view, the brain runs a number of parallel scenarios, and the one that basically shouts loudest draws focus. That's the stream that becomes conscious. Now, is there any neurological reason why more than one focus couldn't coexist in the same piece of meat? Split brain experiments, not to mention neurological maladies like alien hand syndrome, suggest that this kind of thing happens even if you do decide that MPD is just a stupid fantasy cooked up by a bunch of gullible therapists. And there are a lot of gullible therapists out there. Trust me on this. Now, so far, all of this is merely a wank. We don't have to worry about consciousness uploaded into clone bodies or whether a particular synapse pattern entered into RAM is going to wake up and start demanding the vote. But that could change before long. Moore's law has long since stopped being an interesting correlation. Now it's a goal. It's a sacred quest. The whole damn computer industry seems dedicated to keeping it up to speed. 
And they only have to do that for a few more decades before we can copy a brain, synapse for synapse, into software. We've already started, in fact. There's this burgeoning field called synthetic neurology. It's a big step sideways from conventional AI research, or even what you might have heard about neural nets. Those things are merely associative networks. They're built from scratch. They're shaped by operant conditioning. But conventional neural nets don't come with evolutionary baggage. They don't have amygdalas or sex drives or fight-flight responses because anatomically, they are not brains. Synthetic neurology changes all that. Goal of synthetic neurology is to understand brains by building brains, and it builds them by copying the fuckers from the real world into the virtual one. And that means virtualizing all those messy animal instincts along with everything else. The Blue Brain Project has been ticking along since 2005. It's a collaborative effort between IBM and a bunch of Swiss researchers out of the Federal Polytechnical School of Lausanne. The goal is building a full-scale, synapse-for-synapse human brain, right down to the molecules. It's slow going, but they've got Moore's Law on their side, and they expect to finish the job in 10 years. Over at the Neuroscience Institute in San Diego, they're striving for more modest goals. They're working with rodent brains instead of primate ones, but they are further along. They've already got a reasonable facsimile of a rat hippocampus up and running. Gerald Edelman, who's the lead researcher of that group, has explicitly stated uh, in the prestigious journal Science, no less, that the ultimate goal of this field is to produce a self-conscious artifact running in software. So while we do have a bit of breathing room, don't count on a lot. I expect it'll be sooner rather than later that we've got to start worrying about incorporating multiple instances of the same individual into our legal and ethical paradigms. We're already falling behind the curve. Does Sybil get 16 votes in a democratic society? What about our supervillain baby? Uh, twice the brain tissue, but perhaps only one singular sense of identity. Two votes or one? And looking into the future a bit, how do you deal with multiple instances of the same personality running in software? Are they different individuals? In which case, anyone who can make enough copies of themselves can throw an election or, at the very least, become their very own special interest group. Or do we assume that once you copy yourself, you become less special somehow, that each you gets only a fraction of a vote, that I can get away with killing one of you, as long as there are redundant copies to be had? Do we need to redefine the very value of human life? Well, how the hell did we define it in the first place? We didn't, really. Mostly we just said that human life is sacred because humans have souls, which is basically church speak for don't you dare question this or we'll burn you at the stake. Terms like soul, sanctity of life, these are profoundly defensive terms which do not play well by the rules of reasoned debate because, of course, they are not concepts based on reasons. They're things we simply assume. We take them on faith. And because we can't defend such concepts rationally, because we can neither define nor detect nor justify this soul of which we speak, we resort to shouting down anyone who questions it generally by comparing them to Hitler. Which perhaps explains why the American heartland loathes atheists even more than they loathe Muslims, according to a recent poll. Maybe we can do better. Maybe we can come up with something a bit more empirical, more consistent, something involving unique cognitive complexity. What I find most wondrous about reality is the presence of self-organizing systems in a decaying universe. The fact that in a continuum whose fundamental inescapable rule is things fall apart, these marvelous little knots of complexity can emerge and wake up and look around and talk to each other for a while. 
And I don't think too many would argue with me on this score. It's, it's pretty close to the way we value things already. Nobody worries too much about stepping on an ant, for example. There's trillions of them. Chances are the millions in any given colony are genetically identical anyway. Uh, pigeons, by contrast, are more complex, more cognitive, and as a result, fewer folk are copacetic about squashing them. Uh, many of those that are would draw the line at cats or dogs, dolphins, primates, republicans. But in each case, it comes down to how cognitively complex the species in question happens to be. Now, parenthetically, although we would like to characterize the scale as being purely cognitive, the, the smarter something is, the more we value it, the fact that humans also seem to regard themselves as smarter than everything else is an awfully convenient coincidence. It'll be interesting to see whether the pattern persists when we start to encounter or build intellects that outstrip our own. Will we continue to apportion reverence based on intellect, valuing the lives of super smart AIs and aliens and conjoined twin supervillains more than we value our own? Will we suddenly decide that reverence is a step function? and that everything above a certain baseline level should be treated equally, but that AIs with five-digit IQs shouldn't get special treatment? Or will we be honest enough to admit that our real values are based not on intelligence, but on simple egocentric similarity to ourselves? In which case, our regard for other life forms might decline not just how far below us something is on the cognitive scale, but how far above us as well, to the point that we may end up holding both ants and transcendent gods in equal contempt. And, you know, to the wise asses among you who would point out that many of us all really deal with a transcendent god, and that we obviously revert more than human life, judging by the body counts of various religious wars, I would have to say with all due respect, bullshit. The gods we humans worship, by and large, are not especially transcendent. Judging by their behavior, they are just as capricious, vindictive, and irrational as their creators. Anyway, as I was saying, this cognitive complexity standard should be pretty easy for most of us to swallow, uh, excepting, of course, those chanting and placard-waving souls who can't seem to get their heads around the difference between a fully developed human and a five-week embryo. And this standard can serve us well up to a point at which we start photocopying ourselves. Because there's another scale we like to use to attribute worth, and that's rarity. The rarer something becomes, the more valuable it is. No one's under any illusions about the cognitive capacity of the Salt Creek tiger beetle, but it warrants a lot more attention than your average insect by virtue of being listed as an endangered species. Not as much attention, mind you, not nearly as much federal funding at least, as the Florida panther, which is about equally endangered, but at least as a fellow mammal. And when you get around to post-humans running multiple instances of themselves, we've basically come full circle back around to ants again. Because it's not just complexity we're talking about, redundancy as well. That guy in bed, the old me who thinks he is me, I'm not going to grant him unique status just because he was asleep for a couple of hours while I was out stealing his memories and buying a gun. That's not another individual, that's just me with two hours of amnesia. I can kill him now, or he can kill me, and it's no great loss. Whoever survives retains almost identical information. But the two of us are starting down the road to cognitive independence. If we both survive, give us a few years of radically divergent experiences, and we might be completely different individuals. Kill one of us then, the crime is far more grievous. You've killed someone for whom there may be no replacement. So the severity of the crime depends not just on who you kill, but when you kill them. 
This is a, a sliding scale that contains no absolutes. The value of your life is not just a function of your own intrinsic qualities. It's a function of how much you differ cognitively from the rest of the population. If you're the only one of you, you are literally irreplaceable. If there are a dozen active instances of you running at any given moment, killing any one of them, even killing the original, hey, that might barely be a misdemeanor. Now, this is not an especially nice system. Uh, those individual instances aren't going to feel any less individual. They're each going to fight for survival as if they were the only one of them on the planet, which as far as they're concerned subjectively is precisely the case. Nor is this an optimal system. But it doesn't really have to be either of those things. It only has to be a better system than the existing one. And in fact, might not even have to meet that requirement. Because let's face it, we don't make most of our decisions consciously or rationally. Our gut tells us how we feel, and then we come up with rational justifications afterwards. It's a truism that any paradigm needs to resonate on a gut level to achieve widespread acceptance. And the gut is pretty immune to reasoned arguments. There's a reason they call these things motherhood issues. And this new hybrid system of ethics, this scale of cognitive redundance, if you will, it's based on two scales of, of measurement that are already pretty firmly entrenched. Bringing them together, for good or for ill, may already be a done deal. And when we've settled on such a scale for cognitive complexity, it's really only a small step to apply it to other forms of biological information. Genes, for example. We already seem to be heading down that road, too, according to Carrie McIntosh of the Santa Clara University School of Law. Her 2005 book, Illegal Beings, Human Clones and the Law, spells out the legal ramifications under the Constitution of the various pieces of anti-cloning legislation sprouting throughout the states, uh, ramifications which effectively classify clones as illegal, non-human entities, not anywhere near as special as us one-of-a-kinders. So this is more than the way of the future. This is fast becoming the way of the present. Me? I'm just glad I don't have an identical twin. Reality Remastered with Peter Watts. There you go. So like I say, if I just had a teacher like Peter Watts, that would have been great. You know, you can just imagine, you know, that kind of image of Peter Watts there. If he was a teacher sitting on his like desk in front of his desk, you know what I mean? With his leg kind of cocked up there. Yes, I thought that was a great article. And look for many more, hopefully, yes, by the great man himself. Peter, thank you very much for that. Next, we come on to our final event of the night. It is a short story by Rudy Rucker. Now, Rudolf von Bitter Rucker, born March 22nd, 1946. American computer scientist and science fiction author. One of the, actually, most people know this now, the founders of the kind of cyberpunk movement. Has books out there, software, wetware, and won Philip K. Dick Award. His latest book is Post-Singular, and this takes on the question of what will happen after singularity. That is, what will happen after the computers become smart as humans and nanotechnology takes on the power of magic. Nature will come alive. Narration today for this story is by Mark Nelson. Mark Nelson is actually now a professional narrator, so I'm rather lucky to get Mark. I've got a couple of stories, or a few stories actually narrated by Mark Nelson, so please join me and listen to them over the coming months. Check out Mark's website, there will be links on the site to that. 
So, without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Easy as Pie by Rudy Rucker. In a far corner of a distant galaxy spins Planet X, a place quite similar to our wonderful Earth. Like Earth, X is in a planetary system with a chaoticity of six parts per million, and like Earth, X orbits its sun in the third resonance band of its planetary system's attractor. Planet X wears a life web much like our holy Gaia, mother of life. Planet X once had a living neighbor, a planet Y. But eons and eons ago, the lost inhabitants of Y mastered direct matter control and ended by turning themselves and their planet into a great band of dust. Each year, there is a day when Planet X is the furthest from its sun and the closest to the orbit of the shattered planet Y. The people of Planet X call this day X Day, and they cheer themselves through it with eating, drinking, and the giving of gifts. This is the story of what happened one X Day season to a selfish peasant named Carl and to his kind, long suffering wife, Giselle. Carl and Giselle's hut was on the outskirts of a large, ugly city. As a young man, Carl had been lively and wise, but time had crusted his heart over with self indulgence and idle lechery. With his and Giselle's children grown and gone, Carl's only remaining smiles were for dancing girls, for smoke, and for drink. Like many women, Giselle thought first and foremost of her family and her home. If Carl was increasingly unpleasant to live with, there were still things to be set right in their hut, and, above all, there was the X-Day visit of the children to prepare for. Six weeks. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Before X day, Giselle began talking to Carl about the coming holiday. Carl tried to put her off with sullen grimaces and discouraging words, but Giselle kept up her happy plans and chatter. What Giselle thought, she frankly said, and now she was thinking about the holiday. You say we can't afford a goose, but at least we have to put up some garlands, Carl. And the hut needs to be cleaned from top to bottom. Oh, what for? The hut looks fine. And you didn't like the garlands I put up for you last year. I think that this year we'll use ivy for the garlands, continued Giselle. Ivy will stay nice and green. Where are we supposed to find ivy? Don't you remember? There's a big patch of ivy near the top of Summer Hill. When the children were younger, you and I used to walk there with them all the time. It's not far. Come, Carl, let's go to Summer Hill and gather ivy. You're always asking for something, Giselle. I'm about to go to the inn. I'll get ivy another day. Or you get it. The inn is what you love, Carl, and I don't begrudge you. You worked hard for many years. Now you're an idle, red-faced lecher who stares at hussies. Fine. Nobody's perfect. But come with me to Summer Hill for an hour now. Giselle smiled fetchingly at Carl and ran her gentle hand across his stubbled cheek. I'm not a red-faced lecher, blustered Carl. Then don't act like one. The inn's empty at this time of day anyway. If you go there now, you'll be a desperate red-faced lecher. Giselle laughed so merrily that Carl's anger was undone. Carl and Giselle left their hut and wound their way through their neighbor's huts and up the slopes of Summer Hill. Soon there were no more dwellings. Hilltops were viewed as sacred on planet X, and all hilltops were left empty for the wind, the people, and the Gaia of X. As they gathered ivy high on the hill, the peasant couple could see out over the great imperial city of Mur, which lay to their north. In the center of Mur rose the far tiny spires of the emperor's palace. The air near the palace was enlivened by the comings and goings of the gleaming metal flying saucers that the Emperor Klaatu and his court used. Carl and Giselle had often been into the city for market day, but neither of them had ever stood directly before the imperial palace. Peasants were not much welcomed in Mur outside the market district and a peasant who tried to walk all the way to the palace was likely to be beaten and robbed, if not by a thief, then by an officer of the imperial watch. Though his palace was off-limits to the peasants, the emperor's airships often came to claim goods from the market. Over the years, many of the great silvery saucers had grown to a size of over fifty feet. Yes, grown— the metal saucers were living things that grew and learned and eventually died. 
The saucer's silver surfaces were intricately chased with filigreed coppery lines that branched and intertwined as a saucer grew. No two saucers were quite the same. With exercise, polishing, and plenty of sunshine, a flying saucer could grow for many a year, perhaps as much as two centuries. When a saucer got quite old, its skin would thin out to nothingness, and the whole thing would suddenly crumble into a drifting dust like mushroom spores. Where did the saucers come from? They spawned on the ribs of Planet X herself. Every few years, in some deep cave of Planet X, and never twice the same cave, a few baby saucers would be found stuck to the walls like limpets. All saucers that were found became the property of the Klaatu dynasty, and the finder, invariably a hardy young peasant, would be granted imperial favor, a purse of gold, and the rank of baroness or baronet. The sages of Planet X classified the saucers as spore magic. Spore magic included all the inexplicable events that had puzzled the citizens of X throughout history. The fact was that very odd things happened regularly on Planet X, especially around X-Day. When the bright shape came flying down at Carl and Giselle on Summer Hill, they may have thought for an instant that it was a saucer. But it was a goose— with snowy white plumage and a wedge-shaped orange beak. The goose stood there on her orange-webbed feet, curving her neck this way and that, looking at Carl and Giselle. Finally, she began slowly to waddle about, pecking up snails from beneath the ivy. "'Catch the goose, Carl!' exclaimed Giselle. "'We can eat her on next day.' Carl was reluctant. The goose looked alert and powerful. Carl didn't much fancy being pecked, clawed, and wing-beaten by the beast. "'Why can't our X-day meal be turnips, like it is every other day?' said Carl. "'Leave the goose alone, Giselle. They'll have a goose at the inn on X-day in any case. If I happen to go there, I can bring a wing home for you.' "'Selfish old fool,' said Giselle. I'll catch the goose. Giselle marched towards the plump white bird. Far from looking alarmed, the goose looked interested. She stuck her neck up to full height and regarded Giselle. The goose had shiny blue eyes. Giselle made feeding motions with her fingers, though she had no food to give. Nice goosey, Lucy, goosey girl, sang Giselle. Goose, goose, goose. The goose honked, and when Giselle turned and walked away from her, the goose followed. When Carl, Giselle, and the goose were down among the huts, the goose willingly jumped into Giselle's arms and let herself be carried back to the peasant couple's hut. Giselle cut a turnip into small bits and fed them to the goose, who gobbled them down avidly, stretching out her neck to swallow each morsel. Before letting the goose go outside, Giselle tied a heavy stone to one of the goose's legs. 
Slowly dragging the stone, the goose waddled about the yard, contentedly rooting for slugs, bugs, and snails. "'What a beautiful bird, Carl!' exclaimed Giselle. "'We'll fatten her till the day before X-Day, and then you can butcher and bleed her for me. I'll pluck, singe, draw, and cook her. We'll have goose for X-Day. The children will be thrilled.' "'I hope Tolstan, the cook at the inn, can help me with the butchering,' grumbled Carl. "'I don't know anything about killing a goose. Yes, I'd better go talk to Tolstan.' "'That's fine, Carl, but before you go off to the inn, I still want you to help me put up the ivy.' "'Will you never be done, woman?' cried old Carl. "'But help with the ivy he did.' and only then, finally, could he go to the inn to smoke and drink and stare at the women until it was time to totter home and fall into his and Giselle's bed. In the coming days the goose became more and more Giselle's pet. The goose quickly found a way to free her foot from the rope and stone and could easily have flown away, but she chose not to. At every hour of the day she was inside or outside the peasant couple's hut. When Giselle was active in the hut, the goose would honk plaintively until Giselle would pull aside the hut's wicker door and let the goose in. Once in the hut, the goose delighted in following Giselle, who often fed the goose scraps. The goose liked meat as well as vegetables— Indeed, she would even eat small pebbles and pieces of wood. Not that the goose was going hungry. The more time she spent in the hut, the more snails and bugs there seemed to be on the hut's floor. Giselle noticed that, for a special wonder, the goose seemed to know not to foul the floor, no matter how much she ate. A few days later, Carl was due to pay off his quarterly debt at the inn. He and Giselle dug their small bag of savings out from under a stone at the back of the hearth. There was no way to reach the hoard without getting ashes all over oneself, which was the peasant couple's way of being sure that neither of them dipped into the savings alone. The small leather bag held some silver and copper coins saved from Carl's occasional earnings, along with sixteen gold coins that remained from the inheritance which Giselle's parents had left her several years before. Ever since Giselle got her inheritance, Carl had worked as little as possible. He thought of Giselle's money as his own. As was their custom, Carl and Giselle spread the coins out on the table and counted them together a ritual they went through each time the coins appeared from beneath the stones of the hearth. The goose stood next to the table, watching with glittering eyes. "'Let me take a gold coin to the inn,' wheedled Carl when they were done counting. "'Then I'll have credit clear into spring.' "'Very well,' said Giselle, "'and I'll take a gold coin to spend on gifts for the children.' "'One silver coin would be more than enough for them, woman,' snapped Carl. "'The children are grown. They should take care of themselves.' "'It's my gold, Carl. You should be grateful that I'm so foolishly generous to you.' 
"'Then I get some coppers as well,' shouted Carl. "'I earn the copper and silver in the turnip harvest this fall.' Giselle nodded curtly and slid two gold coins and three coppers to one side of the table. Leaning forward, the two peasants began telling the remaining coins back into the bag. But now, all at once, the goose darted forward and gulped down the two gold coins, pumping her neck to get the hard metal discs all the way down from craw to crop to gizzard. "'No, Goosey!' cried Giselle. "'Grab her!' said Carl, drawing his knife. "'I'll cut her open!' The goose made a frightened noise, like a rusty metal hinge, and waddled rapidly out of Carl's reach. "'Stop, Carl!' cried Giselle. "'She can't digest gold. The coins are safe in her stomach. It's still four days until X-day. If we butcher Goosey now, her meat will spoil.' "'What if she shits the coins into the street?' "'I'll make a nest for her inside our hut,' said Giselle. "'Anyway, haven't you noticed? Goosey never shits. She just grows.' "'Well, nobody's taking any more of our gold,' snapped Carl. He pocketed his three coppers, swept the remaining coins into the little sack, tied the sack tight, and crawled into the hearth to bury the sack again. "'The inn's coin and the children's presents will have to wait until your precious goose is ready,' he told Giselle, and then Carl went down to the inn to spend his coppers. The next morning Giselle found four gold coins in the nest beneath the goose. She bit them and rang them. They seemed true as any coin.' Carl, waking late, sat up, blinking to stare at Giselle. "'What's happened?' "'The goose, Carl. She turned our two coins into four. "'What?' The old peasant sprang out of bed to see. Four bright coins lay in Giselle's dainty hand. "'Give me my two, demanded Carl. "'You get one, Carl,' said Giselle, and gave it to him. "'I'll keep one for the children.' and I'll feed these other two to Goosey to see if it works again. Then we'll have four extra gold coins. Here, Goosey! Carl watched excitedly as the goose ate two gold coins from Giselle's hand. He stayed in the hut at Giselle's side all day, and finally, near dusk, the goose gave a warbling honk and rose to her feet. Gold glittered from the goose's nest, and this time it was not just four coins, it was a heap that Carl feverishly counted as seventeen coins. Their fortune had more than doubled in one day. Carl snatched up two gold coins for his own and hurried off to the inn, leaving Giselle to hide the treasure. Once at the inn, Carl behaved very foolishly. He got drunk and began bragging about his white goose that laid golden coins. One of the emperor's soldiers happened to hear him, and the next morning Carlo woke from his sodden slumber to hear Giselle arguing with someone while angry Goosey made her rusty hinge sound. "'It's just an ordinary goose,' Giselle was saying. "'We caught her on Summer Hill.' 
The goose may be spore magic, came the stranger's voice. I'm here to claim her for the emperor. Any miracle that might be as valuable as the flying saucers was called spore magic. And by ancient imperial decree, all spore magic was the property of the Klaatu dynasty. Goosey came running to the corner of the hut where Carl lay. If the goose is spore magic like the saucers, thought Carl, then the emperor will grant imperial favor to the one who brings her to him. Carl grabbed Goosey in his arms and went out to face the stranger. It was a young knight of the emperor's guard, smartly dressed in flowing silks and furs. One of the emperor's flying saucers rested in the dirt of the peasant's yard. The saucer was a young twenty-footer, still but lightly filigreed. All the peasants from the neighborhood had gathered, or were still gathering to watch. None of the emperor's saucers had ever landed here before, and none of the peasants had ever been inside a saucer. "'I will come with you to bring the goose to the palace,' said Karl, his voice trembling at the enormity of the proposal. "'No, Karl,' cried Giselle, "'the goose is mine.' and I fed her two more coins this morning. "'Silence,' said Karl. "'We cannot argue with the Emperor. I will bring the goose to him, and he will grant me imperial favor. He will give me a bag of gold and the rank of baronet. Have a care, woman!' Karl held the goose tight and stepped away from Giselle. The young knight looked at Karl doubtfully, but then said, "'Very well. Carry the goose into the ship, peasant. But don't touch anything. You are filthy, and you stink.' The inside of the saucer was of smooth, silvery metal, delicately veined with copper. There was a bulge in the wall that made a bench that ran all around the circular cabin. As well as the open arch of the cabin door, there were round, open portholes ranged along the walls. So as not to sully the fine fabric of the cushions on the seats, old Carl sat on the floor, with Goosey cradled securely in his arms. The knight controlled the saucer's flight simply by talking to it. "'Fly back to the courtyard of Emperor Klaatu's palace,' said the knight, and the saucer lifted into the air. Wind whistled through the open door and portholes. The view was dizzying." What, with the uneasiness in his stomach from last night's debauch, it was too much for Karl, and, as the ship turned to angle down to the Emperor's palace, he vomited between his legs onto the floor. Goosey pecked at the vomit. "'You cursed old fool!' cried the young knight, and favored Karl with a sharp kick in the ribs. Karl endured the abuse with no complaint." At least he had now flown in one of the Emperor's airships. The saucer landed in the palace's walled courtyard. The knight called for a scullion to clean up Karl's mess, then led Karl across the courtyard and into the palace. Still clutched in Karl's arms, the goose turned her head this way and that, watching everything with her clear, blue-irised eyes. 
The Emperor Klaatu was a small, bald man with a dark beard and a penetrating gaze. Sitting at the Emperor's side was his fool, or minister, a fat, clean-shaven man with a loose smile. "'Is this the goose that lays golden coins?' demanded the Emperor. "'Yes, sire,' said Karl, "'and I freely bring her to you. Will you grant me imperial favor?' "'Favor?' asked the Emperor. "'A purse of gold,' said Karl, "'and I should like to be made a baronet. I could rule my neighborhood in the name of the Empire. Even my wife would have to obey me.' He bowed low and set the goose down on the floor at the emperor's feet. The goose gave a rusty honk, waggled her bottom, and squeezed out a foul-smelling puddle that resembled Karl's vomit. "'I'm to grant a baronetage for goose-droppings?' roared the emperor. The fool, or minister, cuffed Karl on the head, and the knight screamed for a scullion to clean up the mess. "'I think you have to feed the goose gold coins first, stammered Karl. "'She needs gold to make gold. "'She shits out copies of whatever you feed her. "'Do you have a coin you can feed her, sire? "'Or a large gem?' "'Oh, so I'm to give you jewels as well as gold,' cried the Emperor. "'Knight, lock this charlatan and his goose in the dungeon.' If the goose lays no gold by tomorrow, then put them both to death. I'll have the goose roasted with turnips. Oh, wait, please, wait, cried Karl, as all his courage fled from him. If you want gold from the goose, then you should cut her open right away. She still hasn't shit out the two coins my wife fed her this morning. The goose gave Karl a startled look as the peasant caught hold of her. "'Go on,' Karl begged the knight, stretching out the goose on the floor with her neck in his left hand and her feet in his right. "'Cut the goose in half with your sword, Sir Knight. Cut right where she's fattest. I know there's gold in her. Take the gold and flog me and set me free. Please spare me, my lords, as it is nearly X day. I thought the goose was spore magic. I meant no harm.' The emperor nodded to the knight, and the knight brought his razor-sharp sword down on Goosey's back, quite severing her breast and head from her feet and tail. What a shriek the poor goose gave! Instead of gushing blood, the cut surfaces of the goose's body were damp but firm, with the consistency and color of a ripe avocado. In the center of each surface was a hemispherical depression. Goosey was hollow at the center, hollow as an avocado without a pit. From the two halves of the cut-open cavity there oozed onto the stone floor a shiny fluid that quickly hardened into a puddle of gold. Karl had let go of the goose as the sword struck. Now the goose's rear section rocked back, and began waddling around on its feet, while the front section settled its flat-cut surface onto the floor and began honking and beating its wings. As the seconds passed, the rear section bulged up its top surface to grow a new breast, neck, and head, 
At the same time, the front half of the goose rose slowly up onto fresh-grown belly and legs. The flesh and feathers of the geese flowed and shifted as these transformations happened, so that the two new geese were each of half the weight of the original goose, with each new goose being about four-fifths the original size. One of the geese hopped onto the emperor's lap, and the other waddled over to Karl. "'You, you see,' blustered the peasant, "'the goose is poor magic, and look!' He leaned forward and pried the golden, somewhat vomit-reeking puddle off the floor and presented it to the emperor. "'Here is your gold, sire. Now, please, let me go home. My family needs me for X-Day. Oh, please, sire, let me go to them. I love them so.' "'Very well,' said the Emperor. "'But I will keep both of the magic geese, and you shall receive no gold nor any baronetage. You have tried my patience too sorely.' So Karl spent X-Day with his family, laughing and feasting on a roast goose, which Giselle bought from a poultry-dealer. So relieved was he to be alive that old Karl opened up his heart to his loved ones as never before, and the good feelings lasted on through the rest of the year. And the Emperor? The Emperor grew ever richer as he ran the contents of the royal treasury over and over through the bodies of his ever-growing flock of repeatedly subdivided magic geese, who stayed with him for a whole year. But on the eve of the next X-day, the geese herded the emperor and all his family and all his court into the emperor's flying saucers and flew them away forever, easy as pie. With no more emperors, Planet X became a more sacred place. Hail Gaia! Full of synchronicity, the universe is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst dynamical systems, and blessed are thy strange attractors. Holy Gaia, Mother of Life, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Don't forget, copyright for this is Rudy Rukas. And Rudy's story comes under one-time, non-exclusive rights. So thank you very much, Rudy, for that. And thank you, Mark Nelson, for for an amazing narration. Please check out Mark's website. Link's on the site. And please pop over to Rudy Rooker's site and take a look at his website. So that's it for this week in Starship Sova. I hope it's been good enough for you. Don't forget to join me on the weekend when it will be a two-part special on everything Van Voort, A.A. Van Voort. I hope that's how you say his name. (laughs) Don't forget, pop over to the website if you want to take a look at the back shows. They are now available in our shop. And if you'll be so kind enough to drop a donation and, you know, if you just appreciate what's going on here, show your appreciation and hit the website for a donation. That would be It would mean an amazing lot to us. Thank you very much. Until the weekend, I would just like to say good night from me. Cognitive entangle... 
This one is on cognitive entangle, 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 entanglement, entanglement. This one is on cognitive entanglement, entanglement. This one's on cognitive entang. This one's on. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> Didn't take long to do another lot of mistakes. This one's on cognitive entanglement. Oh, fuck. Entanglement. Entangle. Entangle. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.